And if you were thinking about volunteering to teach at Children's Church, this is a good time to do that. As you saw us kind of struggling to, to find someone for this morning. So if you're not serving in that way and would like to, please talk to me or talk to one of our children's leaders. Rachel Moore would be in charge of that, so talk to her. All right, I'm done with all my announcements. I'm sorry it took a long time, so let's take a deep breath and open our our Bibles, and we're going to be looking at Matthew 5. Again, we're looking at the Beatitudes of Jesus, and we're exploring really what it means to be blessed, or in other words, to experience God's favor. As, As Josh, Pastor Josh and I have talked about, if you look... On social media, you will see lots of different ideas of what it means to be blessed and to feel God's favor on your life. And uh, usually it has to do with material possessions, with human achievements, with something that is very tangible, something that immediately makes us happy. And there's nothing wrong with celebrating those things. However, when Jesus talks about being blessed by God, experiencing God's favor in your life, he has a very different idea. So if Jesus were to tweet, he would hashtag blessed completely different things than we would when we do that. Listen to what Jesus puts under this hashtag. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful Blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, and blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's it. That's the list. So Jesus says, this is how you know if you have God's favor in your life. If you find your hearts being supernaturally transformed by God and exhibiting traits like humility and mercy and so on, We know that God is blessing us, Jesus says, when our life is marked by the pursuit of righteousness and peace. And even when we experience rejection and persecution and loss, we are still blessed because whatever the loss is, relationally or materially, the gain of God's kingdom and a relationship with God is immeasurably greater. So this is how Jesus defines the terms for understanding whether your life is blessed, whether you have God's favor or not. So today we are considering the sixth beatitude, and you can find it in Matthew 5, verse 8. Matthew 5, verse 8. This is on page 809, 809 in your Black Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we encourage you to take one home. We would love for you to be able to read Scripture at home. Let me read the verse, verse 8, Matthew 5. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Matthew Henry, the great commentator on Scripture, says, It is the perfection of the soul's happiness to see God. Seeing Him as we may by faith in our present state, is a heaven upon earth. And seeing him as we shall in the future state is the heaven of heaven. To see him as he is, face to face, 
and no longer through a glass darkly, to see Him as ours, to see Him and enjoy Him, to see Him and be like Him, and be satisfied with that likeness, and to see Him forever, and never lose the sight of Him, this is heaven's happiness. So who can experience this kind of vision of God, this heavenly happiness? Who can see God or know God or be in a relationship with God? Jesus says, only the pure in heart. Only the pure in heart are allowed to have this spiritual vision of God that makes us happy. When you see the word heart in Scripture, what is meant is the inner person, the seed of my personality, my will, my intellect, my emotions, the totality of who I am, the center of my being, the real me who I really am. That's the heart. And unless this real me, the center of who I am, this, this real person, the seed of my personality, unless that is pure, I cannot see God. You see, the vision of God is essentially spiritual, and so it involves my spiritual being. And if my spiritual being, which is the center of who I am, that defines who I am, if my spiritual being is dirty, if it's not pure, I cannot see God. Now think of it this way. Our heart is like the lens through which we see God. And if it's dirty, our vision of God is obscured or sometimes distorted altogether. If it's dirty, we cannot see God. If our heart is impure, we cannot see God. So our goal today is to figure out what it means to have a pure heart. Now a lot is at stake because without the vision of God, there's no happiness, there's no experience of transcendent beauty, there's no accurate perception of reality, really everything is at stake. So what does it mean to be pure in heart? Based on the richness of Scripture's teaching on purity, I'd like to suggest to you that a pure heart is, number one, a changed heart, number two, a clean heart, number three, a committed heart, and number four, a captivated heart. A changed heart, a clean heart, a committed heart, and a captivated heart. Let's start with our hearts being changed. Now, when I say changed, I don't mean slightly improved. I mean utterly transformed. Jesus says in John 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Same theme of having a spiritual vision of who God is and what his kingdom is like. It's impossible unless we are born again. In other words, the change that is required in order for us to see God and his kingdom is so comprehensive that it's like a new birth. It's like becoming a whole new person. In Ezekiel 36, verse 26, this change is described in terms of a heart transplant. God removes the old heart of stone and He replaces it with the new heart, a heart of flesh. 
So this is how God describes this change that is necessary for us to see Him, to have a relationship with Him, to understand what He is like. So we must start with this comprehensive spiritual change because we are spiritually blind and unable to see God at all. Now it doesn't matter how much we squint, right? How much we, how long we stare at God. It doesn't matter what contraptions we use. If there is a spiritual blindness, we cannot see Him. Now I don't know if, if you had a kaleidoscope when you were a kid. Or maybe you have a kaleidoscope in your purse right now. I don't know. Maybe you're a kaleidoscope enthusiast. I had one as a kid. Hours of fun. I didn't have many toys, but one of those toys was, was a kaleidoscope. If you've never had a kaleidoscope, it's, it's, a, it's a cylinder, it's a tube that you look through it. It looks kind of like a spyglass, but it functions nothing at all like a spyglass. You look in it, and, and there, are, there are fragments of glass and other materials, and if you shake it up, as you look at it and the light comes in, the light breaks into through these fragments of glass and, and, and makes these really beautiful patterns. And so you can look at it, and you can shake it up and look at it again, you can shake it up and look at it again, and it always changing, and there's this, this, this beautiful, beautiful pattern, symmetric patterns that, that you see. Now... It looks like a spyglass because you look at it exactly the same way, except that it blocks your vision. A spyglass allows you to see far, allows you to discover something, allows you to focus and find something out. But a kaleidoscope, in fact, blocks your vision, and you don't see any farther than the end of the tube. Now, we are, spiritually speaking, in our sinful state, much like kids who look at a kaleidoscope. You don't actually look through it, you look at it. Because it doesn't go beyond that. And so we, as, as people who are spiritually blind, spiritually dead outside of Christ, also have these beautiful pictures that we think are reality, that, that draw on us, but they really trick us and limit our vision and block our vision, and we can't see beyond that. So a kaleidoscope, though it looks like a spyglass, doesn't function like one. It blocks your vision instead of enhancing your vision. And so for a sinful person, our hearts are like kaleidoscopes. They're blocking our vision. We're unable to see beyond it. We're unable to see God, even though we are tricked into thinking these are beautiful things. And yet, we are prevented from seeing the beautiful being of God. Now, what happens? What happens with us if our hearts are like kaleidoscopes and blind... What happens to us? Well, the Holy Spirit of God is the only one who can change our hearts. It's His work. He can come into a person's life and give them a new nature, a new spiritual nature that is capable of spiritual vision. It happened to me when I was 16 years old. As many of you know, I grew up in an atheistic culture in an utterly non-religious, indifferent-to-religion family in Ukraine. I remember distinctly when I was about 10 years old, I was in, in the village with my grandparents in the summer, which was a very common thing to do. And we were just sitting around and talking. The, the kids were sitting around and talking, and the question came up. We were really bored. You know, there's not much to do in the village. And so we were really bored, and the question came up, is there God? Does God exist? It's an unusual question to, to ask in, in my culture. 
And we took sides, and some, some kids said, yes, God exists, you know. And others says, no, God doesn't exist. And we were all brought up believing that God doesn't exist. And I boldly declared that, of course, God doesn't exist. Of course. We, we sent our people into space. We found out there's no one there. Of course, God doesn't exist. And I remember just how, how obvious it was to me at the time, as a kid, that there was no God. And I was spiritually blind. I was I was utterly apart from Christ. I grew up in a family that that didn't own a Bible until I was I think 13 or 14. I never went to a church ever growing up. I never had one single religious experience ever. Nobody ever talked to me about God. That's how I grew up. And so I was spiritually blind. And of course, it was logical for me to say there is no God. But then when I was about 16, missionaries talked to me. I had neighbors who talked to me, and they shared the gospel with me. And they told me about Jesus, this Jesus who, who came because I needed him. He came because I was spiritually blind and my eyes needed to be opened. He came to give his life for me. And he came to rise again so that I could have meaning and purpose, which I was searching for in my life. And when I heard that, and, and, and it wasn't an instantaneous agreement on my part. But over time, as I was thinking about it, and as I was told more and more things about Jesus, I believed. And my eyes were open. And not only did I agree that God existed, I also agreed that God loved me. That Jesus was real, that he came to die and rise for me. And that that changes everything. Now my question is, why is that, that I grew up in a certain way, when confronted with the gospel, agreed to that and accepted it when other people I grew up with didn't. And by the way, that wasn't the first time I heard the gospel when I believed. There were other times I had heard the gospel from other missionaries. So why is it that at a certain time I just believed and at other times I couldn't and other people couldn't or they didn't? There's one explanation to that. The Holy Spirit of God gave me a new heart. And with a new heart and a new spiritual vision, I was able to see God and accept Him for who He is. My life changed dramatically. And we all have different testimonies, and I, I want to acknowledge that God works differently. But for me, as I look back on that time on my conversion, it wasn't manipulation by a missionary that turned me towards Jesus. It was regeneration by the Holy Spirit of God. And everything changed. My view of reality changed. My life changed. The course of my life, my goals changed. Because God came into my life and He gave me a new heart. He gave me a new nature. He gave me a new spiritual vision. I didn't have that before. And now I did. Now it's very important to emphasize that the spiritual change we're talking about happens on the basis of what Jesus has done. You see, I heard about Jesus, and I accepted what He has done for me. I responded in faith to what He has done as the Holy Spirit gave me a new heart. The Spirit of God can change our nature because the Son of God has changed our condition. When the Bible talks about purity, it is often referring to ritual purity. In the Old Testament, you remember priests could not enter the temple until they purified themselves in order to be acceptable 
in the presence of God or be able to bring sacrifices. Some of the sacrifices were acceptable to God and others weren't. There are certain animals that were unclean, so you couldn't eat them and you certainly couldn't sacrifice them to God. And so we too are impure. We too are unclean and unacceptable to God. To see God means to to be made acceptable in His presence. And that is exactly what Jesus did. Let me give you an example. And I'm sorry if this example seems silly, but it's, I think it's, it's a life example that may resonate with most of us. Imagine you getting fired from your job. And some of you are thinking, I, I don't want to imagine that. Or I didn't have to imagine, that just happened. But imagine that you were fired for a really good reason. They discovered that when you applied for the job and got the job, you had lied on the application. Throughout your time with this company, uh, you were not productive at all. In fact, you would always show up late, sometimes without pants. And you stole people's lunch most days from the communal fridge. And any chance you got to get into an argument with somebody, you did that. And so eventually that catches up with you. As they start looking at you, they realize, oh, by the way, you were also selling secrets to a competitor. Now, this is all beyond doubt, okay? Let's just say it's true. Everything happened just the way I described it to you. And so, of course, you get fired. The security people escort you out. You have that little box with your tchotchkes. And you, you get out of, out of the office and, and they say, you may never enter this place again. Well, a week later, you get a call. And the call is that the CEO of the company wants to see you. Now you're thinking, this is it, they're going to file suit, this, this is not going to end well for me, they're going to put me in jail, they're going to sue me for a bunch of money. What you don't know, that within the week that you were gone, your friend, your old college friend, who happens to be related to the CEO, he is the son of the CEO, has talked to her and has spoken on your behalf and has told his mom, the CEO of the company, that he will vouch for you. In fact, he's going to repay whatever damage you have done to the company. And he's going to commit to whatever damage you might incur. He will cover that. And because the CEO has a relationship with her son, she doesn't want to take you back in this scenario, but because she trusts her son, and because he has committed to you for inexplicable reasons at this point, Now, when you come to that meeting that you dread, you are welcomed. You are given a new ID card. You are given your old office space back. You are given your old job back. And you are fully accepted and welcome in your workspace. And now there is, in fact, a new security in your relationship with the CEO. Now, when I'm talking about this, you can only believe the first part of the story, right? The guy who shows up without pants. You can believe that. You can't believe that somebody would go to this, this kind of length and vouch for someone like that. Somebody that would put their reputation on the line, in fact, put their money into it, just so you can get your job back. Because it doesn't usually happen in our world. But in God's economy, this is a pale illustration of what God has done for us through Christ, right? But there's a lot of similarities. We messed up. We had a job. We had a community, we had a reputation, and all of that we have ruined. And now, rightly so, we are fired from God's creation. And yet, 
just about when you think God is ready to judge you and to punish you rightly, and you don't have any quarrels with Him about that. The Son of God has been working on your behalf, and He has covered your costs, and He has vouched for you, and He has done something in your place, so now you are welcome again at this company in God's creation. Jesus made us pure, acceptable, welcome in God's presence. Jesus removed the thick layer of cosmic filth on our hearts. Through his sacrifice, through his victory, just like the son who went to his mom and vouched for the bad employee, Jesus went to his father and he said, I will pay the cost that my brothers and sisters have incurred. And so whatever they owe you, I will pay. And whatever they will owe you in the future, I commit to pay. And they are here based on my reputation. They are, based, they are here based on my relationship with you. So everything now is rooted not in our performance any longer, but in the son's relationship with his father. Now Jesus did that by grace so we could be welcomed in God's presence. When you hear that news, whatever illustration you want to use, whatever analogy you want to use for the cross and the empty tomb, but when you hear that news, and if you respond to it by faith, and you're saying, yes, it matters, I believe it, it makes sense, it changes my life, that means the Holy Spirit of God has given you a new heart. Because you can see it. Now, you couldn't see it before, but now you can. You didn't like it before, but now you do. It didn't matter before, but now it does. So my question to you is, have you been converted? Has the Spirit of God given you this new heart, this new nature, this new life, this new vision through which you can see who God is really, really is and what He has really done for you in Christ? Has your heart been changed, utterly transformed by the Spirit of God? I want you to wrestle with the question. Please, if you've been in church for, for decades and you hear this question every week, don't ignore it. Look into your heart. And some of you, maybe this is your first time in a Christian church. I don't know. Look at your heart. Has the Holy Spirit of God changed you to such an extent that you would say, it's like I've been born again. It's like I'm a new person. Things I like now are not the things I used to like before. That's the changed heart. A pure heart is a changed, transformed, regenerated heart. Now secondly, a pure heart is a clean heart. Only with a clean heart we can see God. Now here holiness and happiness come together. Now that there is a new lens in the spyglass that allows us to see God. The kaleidoscope is gone. It's a spyglass with a new shiny lens. And you can now see God through this new nature, this new vision. That lens needs to be kept clean. Hebrews 12:14 encourages us to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. But let me just read that again. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. While it is true that at conversion we receive a new spiritual nature from the Holy Spirit, what is also true that the old nature, called the flesh in Scripture, is still active. Sin still has its appeal even though you have a new nature and a new spiritual vision of God. Until glory, 
we are locked into a conflict between the flesh and the Holy Spirit. Every concession to our old sinful nature is a smudge on the new spiritual lens and that obscures our vision of God. Now, you remember that analogy of the bad employee. Now imagine that he's back at work now. He's given this new privilege, right, of being back at work, fully accepted, has the favor of the CEO now. Imagine if he goes back to the old practices, starts stealing people's lunch again, kicking people in the shins, that kind of stuff. What if he starts doing that again? How does the, what does it look like? What do you think that communicates? Is that the right response, considering what he has been given? No. It makes no sense. A person who has been given so much would, would naturally respond in gratitude, right? He would work harder. I almost broke into a Hamilton song just when I said that. And if you don't know Hamilton the musical, don't worry about it. But he would work harder and he would be be working even more than expected. He would put more time and more effort and he would be more productive, of course, because of what, what has been given to him by grace through the, the righteousness of someone else. So if we look at your own life, what's your response to this new birth that God has, has done in your, in your heart? If you have been forgiven, fully accepted with God, not based on what you have accomplished, now fully welcome in God's presence. How, how would you react to that? How should you react to that? Should we not pursue holiness in our lives? How clean is your new spiritual lens? How seriously are you taking sin in your own life? How hard are you fighting your old sinful nature? Are you pursuing and cultivating your new life in the Spirit? Are you examining every part of your life and submitting it to Christ? How deliberate are you about your holiness? Now, I've said holiness a few times. Let me define it. This is J.C. Ryle, who literally wrote the book on holiness. Says this, says, Holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God. According as we find His mind described in Scripture, it is the habit of agreeing in God's judgment hating what he hates, loving what he loves, and measuring everything in the world by the standard of his word. That's the definition of holiness, agreeing with God. So if God loves something, you love that. If God hates something, you hate that. And you look at all of your life, and you use the measurement of God's word, which is a revelation of God's will, to adjust and tweak and change any part of your life, to bring it in accordance with God's will. Now, some of you are listening to me say that, and you're saying, really, everything? Are you saying everything? Do we really need to be so particular, so specific, so we would look at every part of our lives in every corner of our heart and try to conform that to Christ's will in Scripture? Well, the answer is yes. Let me give you a story about this. Leland Riken, in his book on the Puritans, writes, when the English Puritan pastor, Richard Rogers, was lecturing... Someone told him, Mr. Rogers, I like you and your company very well, but you are so precise. To which Rogers replied, Oh, sir, I serve a precise God. So you're so precise, meaning you're so strict, you're so particular, you, you bring in all these different issues under the authority of God's word. And he said, 
yeah, but I serve a precise God. This is what God is like. He is precise. He is, he's particular. He claims ownership of everything in your life and in your heart. Riken continues, one of the names by which the Puritans were first called was precisionists. Of course, everyone is strict about the things he or she values most highly. Athletes are strict about training, musicians about practicing, business people about money. The Puritans were strict about their moral and spiritual activities. Now that makes sense logically, right? If you're pursuing music, you're going to organize your life as to maximize your skill. If you are a professional athlete, your whole life is going to be governed by this goal of, of succeeding as a professional athlete. That makes sense. Whatever your passion is, whatever that goal is in life, your whole life is going to be submitted to that if you're going to be any good at it. So bring it into the spiritual realm and let's ask ourselves how particular, how precise, how specific we are about holiness in our own lives. Now I'm not advocating for a legalistic, pharisaical kind of life. Jesus is talking about the purity of heart. But the purity of heart must result in the purity of life. Right? If my heart is pure, would not my actions be pure as well? Would not my emotions be pure as well? If my heart is pure, would I not relate to others in a substantially different way? Should we not commit ourselves to holiness in response to God's great sacrifice of His Son on the cross, His great gift of forgiveness, would holiness not be the appropriate response? I'd like to suggest a very specific practice to help us keep our spiritual lens clean. It is the regular, it's best if it's daily, practice of confession of sin and resolve to fight sin in your life. As you pray, and I hope that you pray every day, I hope that you read scripture every day, as you do that, commit to confessing your sin in light of what God is speaking to you. As you remind yourself of the gospel, and you pray prayers like, God, I thank you that based on the righteousness of Christ, I am fully accepted with you. Lord, I thank you that the Holy Spirit changed me completely and I am a new creature in Christ. As you pray that, which you should pray every day to remind yourself of the gospel, your next prayer should be, what is it in my life that is not conformed to that? What is it in my life that, that contradicts the truth I believe about God? And you confess it. And you be specific about it. And as you confess it, you ask God for help to fight it. And you say, Lord Holy Spirit, the same God that brought new life into my heart, give me a new resolve to kill sin. Give me a new resolve and a new desire and a new habit to live differently. Now you can use the Beatitudes as a guide in your confession. I don't know if any of you have done it or do it. But you can read through the Beatitudes and you can ask yourself the question, am I reflecting that? Does my life reflect that? Am I meek? Am I a peacemaker? Am I humble? Am I poor in spirit? Am I hungering and thirsting for righteousness? And as you ask yourself those questions, the Spirit of God will inevitably illuminate your heart and tell you 
what is it that needs to change? And He will also change it. I mean, the, the great news of, of our pursuit of holiness and sanctification is that we are not actually really doing that. The same Spirit that brought us to life is now cultivating that life and bringing health into our hearts. Let's talk about a heart that is committed. A pure heart is not just a changed, regenerated heart. It's not just a clean heart, holy heart, but it's also a committed heart. Now this is another sense in which this concept of purity is used in Scripture. It has to do with purity as being uh, as singleness, as single focus, as undivided attention, as exclusive commitment to God. To have a pure heart is to refuse to tolerate rivals to God. It means to will one thing, as Kierkegaard put it. To be pure of heart is to will one thing. There's one thing you want. You have one pursuit in life, and that is God Himself. James 4 verse 8 says, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts you double-minded. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Part of purity is bringing your mind and heart together into one and not being divided and not being distracted and not having multiple focuses in your life. To have a pure heart means to have an undivided heart towards God. David prays in Psalm 86, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. That's an interesting prayer. Unite my heart to fear your name. He goes on to say, I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. So he's praying that God would unite his heart so that he could give thanks and glorify God with the whole heart. Now he's already glorifying God with part of his heart. This is why he's writing the psalm. But he knows that there is a divided nature to his devotion. He knows that he is wrestling with other things that vie for his attention. And so he quite appropriately is praying that God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, would unite his heart, would make it whole, and that that whole heart would be committed to praising and thanking God. Now when we talked about a clean heart, we focused on obvious sin, doing, feeling, thinking things that are against God's law. But it is subtler when we come to the wholehearted commitment. Now you see, not only bad things can block our spiritual vision, but good things also can leave smudges and scratches on our spiritual lens. Now let me give you one illustration and a couple examples to help us understand how it works. Here's the illustration. Imagine a set of binoculars in which the two cylinders are pointed in two different directions. The vision is split. Now even if one part, one lens is pointed in the right direction to the right object that you want to look at, you will not actually be able to focus adequately on it. Our physical vision is not set up to be able to focus on two objects at the same time. We just can't do that physically. Our heart also is not designed to be divided. Spiritually speaking, we cannot focus equally on two different things. Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. 
There may be both good masters, but you can't serve both. You have to pick one or the other. Somebody is going to be more important than someone else. And so if our spiritual vision is split, and like I said, it doesn't have to be obvious sin. It could be anything good in your life that is just inappropriately placed. And so you're looking at God, but you're also looking at something else. And you're trying to do both, and you can't. And so your heart is divided. Your devotion to God is divided. It's split. Now let me give you some examples. And by the way, this was easy for me to find these examples from my own, uh, my own life. These are, people, these are people I know. There were two guys in my church in Chicago, young guys just after college, fascinated with sports, just constantly in fantasy leagues and uh, always always watching sports, always talking about sports. And we had a men's retreat, and I remember, and I just really felt like I needed to talk to them about that because I just felt like that doesn't seem very healthy. <laughs> that just kind of overwhelms your life. And so, so we talked, and I said, well, why do you like it so much? And they said, well, you know, we said, there's nothing wrong with that. We like the narratives. We like, we like the storylines. You know, in, in this basketball season, there's these storylines. We watch how these players develop and what happens and how somebody can come from this situation into that and how players get mixed in relationships and how there's defeat and victory. And they were just so excited even talking to me about it. And I said, but, but is that, does that capture your heart more than the story of the gospel? And they said, no, we, you know, and they're church-going people, you know, read their Bibles, went to a Christian school, and yet their hearts were divided. And yes, they affirmed the gospel, and yes, they came and they worshiped God, but they also affirmed this other passion in life. Sports are not bad, right? It's not wrong to watch sports. It's not wrong to follow the narratives of a particular season. Many of us enjoy that. But when that becomes, when it rivals God, when that pull becomes so powerful that your heart is splitting because it's divided between now these two masters, these two passions, eventually something is going to give. Now unfortunately, in the case of these two young men, to my knowledge, neither of them is walking with Christ today. Now, I'm not going to say there's a direct correlation. I think there's a lot of other stuff that was involved as well. But a divided heart cannot stay divided eventually something will give. And hopefully it's repentance and refocusing on Christ, but many times it's not. Many times it goes the other way. I knew another man in, in Ukraine and grew up in a strong Christian home, good Christian family, went to, to a Bible college, was very active in his church, and then because of the economic opportunities in Ukraine at that time, started his own business. Good thing, right? Starting your own business, nothing wrong with that was successful at it. To my knowledge, he was honest. He had integrity. He, he didn't cheat people. To my knowledge, he did well. He was a good Christian businessman, would say. And yet, his heart was divided. And the better he did in business, the less he showed up at church, the less he was open to serve, the less he would do things in his home that were overtly Christian. Now, I don't know what happened to him, when I was leaving, he was really not in church anymore at all. Now, I'm hoping that at some point God revealed it to him and exposed that reality to him and he returned to Christ. My last example is about family. I knew someone who loved his family and he tried to serve his family as he was serving God. 
but his heart was divided. This lack of a unified spiritual vision eventually made his family isolated and created unhealthy patterns of codependence and placed this man frequently in conflict with other believers because he was so focused on his family that they didn't go to church for a very long time and they said, well, we just do family worship at home and that's good enough for us. Is it a good thing? Yes, it's a good thing. You should do that. You should do family worship in your home. But you should also be involved in a local church. But because of that unhealthy imbalance in his life, by pursuing a good thing, he eventually gave up other necessary things in his life. And as far as I know, he is pretty isolated from the rest of the body of Christ as he is right now. He's still not part of a local church. His family is not really connected with others. He's not under clear gospel preaching every week and not in accountability with other Christians. Now, all these examples are real. All of you can think of other examples. Some of you can cite your own struggles in your own life. The problem here is not that we choose obvious sins over God. That's different. We raise good things to the inappropriate level of significance. And that allegiance to something good over God obscures the spiritual vision of God, stifles our spiritual growth, and sometimes even threatens to damage our relationship with God. Now, I want to be very clear. I'm not asking you to give up good things altogether. That's not the right response. That's a legalistic, pharisaic response. What I'm asking you is to put them in the right place. As your vision is focused on God, if you have a single-hearted, undivided heart pursuit of God, those other things will actually come into a clearer focus on the periphery of your vision. So as you are centered on God, you're looking at His face. As you're doing that, those other good things, family and work and relationships and leisure, all those things actually become clearer because they're placed in the right position. Now, I'd like to suggest another spiritual practice as a way of application that can help us identify those idols. When I talk about things rivaling God, good things rivaling God, we call them idols. They're, they're things that you worship because you are so connected to them, you are so pursuing them so hard that they become a God in your life. The practice I'd like to suggest is regular fasting. Regular fasting. By fasting, I don't mean just abstaining from food for a period of time. I think that's good. I think that's biblical. We need to be doing that. But we can expand that to abstaining from other good things in your life that you suspect might interfere with your single-hearted pursuit of God. You see, idolatry is very deceptive. Most of us here that have idols don't know what those idols are. And so we need to discover them. How do you discover them? You give them up for a time and see how you feel. And if you are thrown into an emotional turmoil (laughs) because you miss it so much you can't live without it, that's not a good sign. Now you're saying, well, how do you give up some of the good thing. How do I give up work? I'd like to give up work. That would be nice, right? <laughs> if work is my idol, how do, I, how do I do that? Well, take a vacation. Take a real vacation from your job. And how do you feel on that vacation? I, friends, I struggle with that. When I'm 
disconnecting from ministry is difficult because so much of my identity is tied here with you. And so it's always a good time to reflect for me when I'm away from church. And I'm reflecting, I'm saying, is it too important to me? Now, are you important to me? Absolutely, I love you. You're very important to me. But I don't want my heart to be divided and pursue you as much as I pursue Christ. In fact, if I pursue you as much as I pursue Christ, I will not pursue you well. I will only pursue you well if I'm pursuing Christ first. Now, do that. Take a vacation. Give up food for a day and see what your relationship with food is really like. Give up coffee. Give up whatever else you drink. Give up those kind of things. Give up entertainment and see how it feels. You might find out that that's not a big deal. Totally fine without it. Great. Good. This is a good thing. Celebrate that. But you might realize that I'm, I'm so attached to this, it's unhealthy. My spiritual vision of God is obscured by this habit, by this attachment. And so when you fast, these things are exposed. Now, I understand that I'm speaking to an evangelical church in America at this time, and we just don't fast very much. But we need to. We need to. Let's do it together. Let's do it individually. Set time aside for regular fasting. In fact, we're going to have a fast day in August to kind of refocus on what God is doing here to prepare for a new season of ministry this fall and winter and spring. So fast with us. And do that to see what idols might be lurking in your heart. And finally, a pure heart is a heart that is captivated by the vision of Jesus. A pure heart is a heart that is captivated by the vision of Jesus. Jesus said, whoever sees me, sees him who sent me, meaning God. No one has ever seen God, John 1 says, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Who is this only God who is at the Father's side? It's Jesus. Jesus has made God known to us. Colossians 1 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the image. He's the projection. He is the picture of who God is and what God is like. Jesus, by taking on the human nature, has made visible to us the spiritual nature of God. We see God by looking at Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, Only they will see God who in this life have looked solely unto Jesus Christ, the Son of God. For then their hearts are free from all defiling fantasies and are not distracted by conflicting desires and intentions. They are wholly absorbed by the contemplation of God. They shall see God whose hearts have become a reflection of the image of Jesus Christ. They shall see God whose hearts have become a reflection of the image of Jesus Christ. Is your heart captivated by the glory of Christ? Because that is how you see God. That is how your hearts are being made pure, by continual focus on Jesus. Do you see God becoming human, this, this omnipotent, as vast as the world being, now forced into the small person of a human baby? Do you see Christ in your mind? Do you see Him like that? 
Do you see him teaching the crowds and speaking hope and joy to them and healing diseases and proclaiming the kingdom of God that is breaking into the human dysfunction and and hopelessness? Do you see Jesus praying in the dark? Much like you do many times when the only person that's listening is God. Do you see Jesus praying in that garden at night, submitting His will to the Father, His heart being united in His pursuit of God's glory? Do you see Jesus' body covered in blood? Do you think of His wounds? Do you think of Him gasping for breath? Do you hear His cries of agony? Not just physically hurt, but emotionally destroyed, spiritually suffering, taking our sin upon Himself. And then do you see Him trampling death by death? This is one of the oldest hymns in Christendom. Christ trampled death by death. He conquered death by death. Conquered our death by His death on the cross. And then do you see Him rising from the grave, holding in His pierced hands the keys to eternal life, ready to give it to all who would look at Him in faith? Do you see Him, after His resurrection, reassuring His disciples, explaining the Scriptures to them, sending them out to turn the world upside down and to call millions into God's family? Do you see Jesus coming back in glory to set everything right, to redeem His creation, to banish evil forever? As I'm saying these things, and I'm hoping that there are images in your mind that appear when I say these things, from your own reading of Scripture, from your own prayer life, from things you heard and processed and learned and spoke back to God. As you hear these things, does your heart sing to God? Is your heart captivated? Just caught, caught up with His glory and wisdom and beauty. If our hearts are captivated by Christ's beauty and His glory and His power and His love, we will not tolerate sin. It is impossible. It's impossible to do that. If your heart is captivated, I know that's a big if, but if your heart is captivated by this vision of Jesus, how can you at the same time think of Him and sin? We will not resist. We will resist temptation. We will put to death any sinful impulse. We will order our lives precisely so as to reflect the great salvation of our Lord. If our hearts are captivated by this vision of Christ. If our hearts are captivated by the vision of Christ, we will discover and remove our idols. We will accept that the good things in this life are only good when we place them in the right context. We will have an undivided heart toward God. What is the solution to all of this? How does your heart become pure so you can see God as being captivated by the vision of Christ. That's what we're doing today. 
as we're coming to this table, with our physical sight, we see the broken bread and the poured drink. With our spiritual sight, we're looking at Jesus, broken for you and establishing a new covenant of grace for your sake forever. That is what's happening. When you come to the table, there's, it's a glimpse. It's a refreshment of the vision of Christ, which is why we do it every week, which is why we gather frequently to talk about these things, to remind each other that Christ is beautiful, that Christ is glorious, that Christ is powerful, that Christ is loving and is gracious to us. I'm going to ask you three questions as you come to the table. Number one, do you need to respond in faith to the gospel of Christ and be transformed by the Holy Spirit? If you are not a follower of Christ, I am calling you as a minister of the gospel on behalf of Christ to respond to him in faith and to say yes to his offer of forgiveness and salvation for you. The offer that doesn't just change your eternal destiny, that is great enough, but it changes your life now. It gives you a new nature that loves God, that will pursue Him, that will find its satisfaction in Him. If you are not a believer, I ask you not to come to this table. Don't do it just for show. Don't do it because there's peer pressure. But come to Christ. Come to Him and embrace Him by faith. Question number two, is there a sin in your life that is obscuring your vision of God? Is there a sin in your life that is obscuring your vision of God? Is there something in your relationships? Is there something in the way you handle money? Is there something in your sexuality? Is there something at your home that is sinful? I want this to be specific. I want us to think in specific terms. Is there a sin, a particular sin in your life that needs to be confessed today? Reflect on it, confess it, and come and accept forgiveness at this table. As you confess and as you resolve to fight sin, accept that Christ loves you and that He's given you all the resources you need to fight it well. You don't need to be crushed by guilt and shame anymore. You can freely to come to Christ and accept a new, a fresh life in Him. And I encourage you that if you're struggling with something today, talk to someone else. There's so many people here that would love to help you. Without judgment, but with help and accountability and working together with you with resources to help you overcome a particular sin in your life. And question number three, is there a good thing in your life that is rivaling God? Is there a good thing in your life that is rivaling God? Is there an idol in your life that you need to deal with? Again, ask God in prayer to reveal it to you. As you come to the table, pray that God would be gracious enough to show you where your heart might be divided. I'm going to pray, and then after I pray, we will come forward. You can take communion right up front here and put the little cup back in the basket here. Or you, you can take it back to your seats and meditate more and take communion when we sing. If you're unable to come forward, an elder will bring it to you. Please raise your hand 
high if you want to take communion and you can't make it down here we'll be happy to accommodate you and bring it to you and if you're out in the balconies there are communion tables set for you there you don't have to come down you can just take it there with everybody that you're sitting with so let me pray and ask God to work in our hearts at his table Father we praise you we praise you that when we see you it brings us real meaning real joy real hope that the spiritual vision of God does in fact change everything in our lives this is not something we can add to our lives but it's something that utterly transforms us Lord I pray for those that are not your children have not been adopted into your family have not been given this new nature have not been born again have not had this spiritual heart transplant happening to them Lord, Holy Spirit, giver of life, we pray that you would work, that you would come and and change hearts here. Lord, I'm not uncomfortable or afraid to pray this prayer. Overpower, Lord. Change, transform, convert, give new birth to those that are here that are not your children. Pray for those that are dealing with sin in their own lives, that are your children, and yet the spiritual lens of their vision is scratched up and smudged. I pray, Lord, that you would help us confess freely our sins and seek forgiveness that is guaranteed to us at the cross through Christ. Lord, I pray that you would bring renewal and hope and freedom into those lives who, who have been affected by secret shameful sin. And I pray for those of us who are dealing with idolatry. Lord, would you graciously reveal to us what is it that's good in our lives, that is your blessing, your gift, that rivals you in our hearts? And Lord, would you, like David prayed, unite our hearts so that we can praise you with our whole heart? Not a portion of it, however big. But all of it, let us love you with our heart and our, our strength and our mind and our whole life. I pray, Lord, that you would do this in us right now. We remember what Jesus has done for us, and we pray that the Holy Spirit would now come and prove that it's real, convince us again of the truth of the gospel, fill us again with grace so we can serve you well, live a life that you that you have designed us for. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Let us come together around his table and enjoy his forgiveness, his new covenant privileges.